Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Gospel Community Church. If this is your first time joining us this morning, we just want to let you know that we're honored to have you as our guest. We also want to let you know, as you probably just heard in the announcement, that starting next week, we're going to start gathering again in person at the Downtown Athletic Club. So that's January 10th at the Downtown Athletic Club. So also, if you're a part of the GCC family, uh, love and miss you guys. Thank you for tuning in this morning. Uh, whether this is a reminder for you or uh, something that you've heard for the first time, our church's mission is to make Jesus the hero. We understand that Christ is already the exalted king. And so what we strive to do and aim to do uh, by God's grace and through the Spirit's power is to constantly elevate him, lift him up, and point people toward him. We know that I'm not a good hero. I tell my kids that. We know that every hero our pseudo-hero in our culture will at some point fail, but we know that Christ can't because he's already been the exalted king who his work has perfectly been finished, which is why we exalt him. So that's our church's mission statement. That's why we exist. And again, we're honored to have you join us this morning. We're going to be doing a one-off sermon this morning on sin. And so if you would turn in your Bible to the book of James, uh, the easiest way to find James, if you're new or uh, unfamiliar with your way around the Bible, is to actually go to the very end. You'll find a book called Revelation. And then if you go left from there, you'll find Jude, 2 uh, Peter, 1 Peter, and then you'll find James. Uh, there's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in there as well. But if you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. So uh, James is where we're going to be at this morning. Just a couple verses is what we're going to be covering. And we're going to be, like I said, doing a sermon on sin. Before we do that, have one thing to announce. Uh, right here, I have uh, my Bible from uh, 2020. So happy 2021, everyone, too. Uh, this is my Bible from 2020. And this is a tradition that we are just starting. Uh, I knew we were going to be doing it uh, now, so I started this at the beginning of this year. But if you open this Bible, it says, uh, with an asterisk, Rick Reeves, 2020. What we are going to do is, each year, our elders are given a Bible, and these Bibles have places to make notes of them. And then what we're going to do is give them away to our members at the end of the year. This is this is uh, has multiple purposes. One big one, and, and the main one, is accountability. So by doing this, our members are able to hold our elders accountable that we are living and staying and abiding in God's word. So we're, we're called to be sanctified in truth. God's word is the truth. And so the other thing is it's us holding our members accountable to living and abiding in God's word as well. And so through it, I've uh, taken notes throughout the year. Uh, the, uh, our members can read them. And throughout the years, my hope is these Bibles are circulating inside of our churches. So at the end of each year, we're going to do that with a new Bible. We're going to do it at random draw for our members. But the next person would write their name in there with their symbol. And you can see who's uh, Marxist. Also, Charles Spurgeon had a quote. Uh, I might butcher it, but some, something like this. It was that the man's Bible who's falling apart, his life normally isn't. The same thing could be said for a community, uh, for a local church body, is we want us to live in God's word. We want to dwell in God's word. And so we want our Bibles falling apart so our community isn't. And so uh, with that, I'm going to say this year, instead of doing a draw as we are looking to install membership in 2021, that I just want to give this Bible out to someone I've seen in our church family just grow tremendously in their hunger for the word and their hunger for theology, but also just have, they've drastically grown since they've been at GCC um, up until now. And so that's DJ Larson. And so we're going to give DJ this Bible. Uh, 
DJ's favorite theologian is Ronnie Gogan, and so I'll quote Ronnie for DJ. And Ronnie says that the best apologetic someone can have is to know the Word of God, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. And so I want to give this to DJ and let him uh, just jot his notes down and dwell on the Word this year, and something, like I said, we'll continue to do for years to come. So with that, let's dive into the book of James. First, what do we know about James as an author? We know that James is the half-brother of Jesus. We know that James and his family thought Jesus was loony for the claims that he made uh, pre-cross and pre-resurrection. We know that James, if not the senior pastor, was uh, heavily involved with the church of Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ. We know that James is passionate about the gospel, and we know that he's passionate about believers living a consistent life with now who they are as saints, which means set apart holy ones. How do we know that? In this short book, we have, uh, I think, roughly 108 verses and 58 commands. So James is, is, is a very prescriptive letter, meaning that it's prescribing how to live over and over and over again. And so with that, he starts off his letter talking about trials and talking about how trials can test our faith. And we pick up today in verse 12, uh, which is what I'll read right now, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for a God who has spoken. We thank you that we're uh, not left to, uh, to try to build our own foundation of truth to stand upon. We're thankful that it's not subjective. We thank you for your word that is truth, the objective reality, God, of, of, of who you are. Help us to live consistent with your word. Help us to live consistent with who we've been made in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone. Father, we pray that we have a hunger for your word as a community. We pray that it's the foundation we stand upon, but we also pray that it is the authority that we sit under. Father, we pray that the gospel would permeate our hearts and souls and our minds. And right now, as we talk about sin, that we would be convicted, that we would not push back, Father, from, uh, from, from challenge, from exhortation, from conviction, but we would receive what you have for us through the power of your spirit this morning. All to your glory, to the lifting up of Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know the topic of sin is not a popular topic to preach on. I know that it's not a, even a popular word to use in our culture today. Our Bible has no problem with it. Our Bible has no problem talking about it, even talking about our sinful nature. But it's become taboo in our culture. It, it, it's a word that even gets avoided in the pulpit. Uh, it is a, a listen to... Uh, a former president talk about uh, Jesus and even why Jesus came. And throughout all of that, uh, there was no mention of sin. And oftentimes you'll even hear some evangelicals say that uh, Jesus came to save us, which is true, but save us from what? Uh, he didn't come and die a horrific death and, and suffer abuse and brutality just to save us. He came because we needed saving from sin. And so I know this topic is about as Eugene is a very like uh, coffee culture, and so this is about as popular as as Folgers 
uh, or you bring in something like Folgers Coffee to uh, to a uh, conversation on coffee, or if you're a, a big wine snob, like uh, you bring in Charles Shaw or something, it's just taboo. It's not popular. People don't like to talk about it. We like to avoid it and push it aside. We're going to look at sin this morning. And let me just be honest in saying this. Why the one-off on sin? Honestly, because of my own heart's proneness to wander. Uh, in, in this last season, but even in uh, uh, as uh, 2020 concluded, I've just felt my own heart, my own tendency to just wander. And so this is not something that I've went through, but uh, talking with a law enforcement official from Eugene Police Department, he said in almost 20 years, they have seen stuff they've never seen before. Uh, the, the addictions are through the roof, uh, domestic violence, just stuff is going on. And so my, my heart in talking about this is that I just want to pastor and shepherd our people well on sin. Since I've seen my own heart and I've seen what my own heart is capable of, then I want to, to, to talk about this and talk about this with our people. And so here's what I would say. First, please don't think that you are immune or impervious to falling into sin that leads to death. Because I could go through and list many people, Art Azurdia, Bill Heibel, Jen Hatmaker, Tulian Chavijan, uh, pastors and, and, and big name people who have fallen, fallen into uh, egregious sin, who have, who have fallen away from the faith, Joshua Harris, many others. Please, as soon as you hear this, our tendency is, is somehow to think that won't happen to me. I'm, I'm super strong. I'm spiritually strong. I'm, I'm too stubborn. I, I'm, I'm too, uh, too set in my ways. Whatever it is, whatever you think, please do not think that you are incapable of falling into sin and, and letting the, the, the fullness of it have its way in your life and take you off course. Now, what, what is the study or doctrine of sin called? It's actually this big word called hamartiology. So, and it comes from the Greek word, it's two words, uh, hamartia, which, which is actually means sin, and then ology, uh, the study. So it's the study of sin is uh, hamartiology. So that's what we're looking at this morning. What is sin? What is the definition of it, though? I'm going to go with R.C. Sproul on this one. I really like what he says. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute offense? What we are saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point, we are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want, not what you command me to do. That's R.C. Sproul. And so with that, and like the uh, famous hymn goes, my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. It's prone to leave the God I love. If that's you, and, and if there's any uh, playing or flirting with sin, the main point I would say today is don't play with sin. Don't flirt with sin because it's like playing with a loaded gun. The text makes that so clear. It will run its full course like a snowball building momentum. It will lead to a path of complete destruction. And so my plea is don't listen to this for someone else. Listen to this and, and allow the spirit to convict you for you and for what God has for you in this. The reason I also say this is because uh, from the like earliest memories in my life, I have, I have 
I've felt my own pull towards it. I felt my own tendency to run in that direction. I remember at age like five or six, we moved into this uh, neighborhood. And I remember looking in our neighbor's yard and seeing like these rocks. I thought they were like crystal rocks. I must have been like five or six years old. Still remember our address, house, all of that. And I remember looking at them and telling my sister, like, we got to get those. And so uh, we we got home and I remember this is broad daylight. I got a wheelbarrow and got my sister and we went over and we got all these rocks out of our neighbor's yard that were like surrounded around their mailboxes. I thought they were like crystals or something awesome. So we we stole them. And then I remember we got home and just told my parents what we did. They're like, get them back over there. So we got them back over there. The reason I say that is because. Uh, that's something that didn't just stop in my life. It 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 continued to build. It continued to progress. I I pushed back against rules, pushed back against authority to to where one day I was truly wanting to rob banks. I started to rob the pizza men in our neighborhoods and do all that sort of stuff. And so sin builds. And 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 I say that not to like boast in my past or boast in sin or or uh, I don't want to be labeled as edgy, but I feel my own pull towards sin. I, I feel the battle. And, and even driving here this morning, uh, there was one car as we were approaching a, a red light that came to a stop and I sped forward. And, and so like constantly I feel in my life just this pushback toward authority. Here's what I would say. This is my authority. It, uh, this is what I don't ever question. This is the authority that we sit under. This is the foundation that we stand upon. And so if there's something in this that disagrees with my life, I don't go, my desire must be correct. This must be wrong. So I would say, if there's something in you today uh, that, that is pushing back against the word of God, bring that into question. Don't bring this into question. With that, let's, let's read 12 again. James, uh, not unpacking all that he said before this, but he's talking about trials and about the, in a sense, the way God uses those uh, to bring about uh, godliness in our lives and to mold us into Christ's likeness. But he says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what's going on here is James, and, and I'm not going to belabor these verses because I want to spend our time in 14 and 15. But James is talking about trials, and he's talking about tribulations, and he's talking about these difficult seasons. Why is this important? Trials are telling. Trials can be something in our life that leads us toward God and closeness with God, or it can lead us toward sin. And here's the reality is many of us have adopted uh, something like this. It says, all I got to do is keep being a good person and good things will come my way as long as I don't have no in my heart. That is a quote from Joe Dirt. But the reality is, is that many evangelicals have adopted a, a theology like this. It's all I got to do is keep being a good person and good things are going to come my way as long as I don't have no in my heart. So what makes this more dangerous for us? is when we get to trials and tribulations in our life, we go, how is this happening to me? How is God allowing this? I'm a good person. I do good things. In fact, I just went to church three weeks in a row. We, we, we say these sort of, uh, sort of things. We think this way. And here's what makes it more dangerous. We live in the Pacific Northwest. 
And so we live in a corrupt society that rebels and pushes back against God. So when you live in that, it's very easy to compare yourself to the society that you live in. And when you live in a very corrupt society, it's easy for you to go, I'm a good person. Look, look at the culture I live in. I'm much better than it. I'm much better. God doesn't judge us or hold us to a standard based upon the culture or society we live in. But his standard is himself perfect righteousness and perfect holiness. That's what God compares us to. And so instead, we, we've, without realizing it, we've, adopt, we've adopted a Joe Dirt theology, which says that I'm a good person, I do good things, and as long as I don't have no in my heart, good things should come my way. That is a prosperity gospel. That's what it is. And so when good things, uh, when bad things come our way, we go, wait, th this shouldn't be happening to me as a good person. I don't deserve this. Like, I've been doing good, the promise should be that good things happen. Then what do we do with the apostles? What do we do with men being hung upside down, with men being boiled alive, with men being stoned and, and dragged to death? What do we do with that? We'd say these men were living for God, but their lives did not reflect a life of easiness. So anytime something that's not easy comes in our life, we go, wait a minute, there's no way God should allow this. It's because we've adopted our, our culture stance on us being really good people instead of a biblical one. I'm not going to read all the verses that I have, but the Bible has no problem calling us out on what we actually are, the nature of sin that we're born into, but also the way that we live that out. Romans 3, 10 and 12 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Now, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we say, I'm good. The Bible says, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. I'm not going to read through all of these, but the Bible also in Romans 5, 10 calls us uh, enemies of God. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 tells us that we are dead and Jeremiah 17, 9 makes it very clear that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? These are just a few of many to give us a sober reality of what the Bible says we are. We do not enter God's world um, as, 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 as obedient children. I saw this for myself at, at a young age. I've seen it in my children. We enter in with a sin nature and then we feed that nature. And that's a question I would have for us now. What are you feeding in your life? You're feeding something. You're either going to feed a sin nature or you're going to feed godliness, but you're feeding something. What do you do when you come to a trial? Does, does, does a trial actually uh, tell you in your life what your theology is? Does, does a trial in your life lead you to tell God what you deserve in the way that God should be blessing you? Or do you understand like the Apostle Paul who sat in prison and understood that there is nothing that he, de, uh, that, that he can demand deserving from God, that anything that he has, life itself, breath, any sunshine, any good gift, he does not consider himself worthy to claim or deserving of. Or do, do we enter into trials and say, I don't deserve this? Now, here's the thing. James is not being uh, um, unsympathetic, and I'm not trying to be unsympathetic to those of you that are in a difficult season right now, that are going through a really painful time and a really painful process. But here's what I would say. Have you considered that whatever God has allowed to come into your life, not that God has produced, we, we live in a sinful fallen world, but what God has allowed to come into your life, have you considered that God is using that to woo you into his presence, to draw you to him, to draw you closer to him and to mold you into the likeness of Christ? 
Now, we, we want God to make us happy. God actually does care about our happiness. John 10, 10 say, says that, that Jesus came not that we would just have a life, but have it abundantly. But here's the thing. Happiness and holiness are not separated. They are brought together. And in fact, our happiness is produced from our holiness. When, when we grow in holiness, it actually produces happiness. G G Jesus explains this in the Beatitudes. And so what God can be doing through a trial in your life is actually molding you into the likeness of the Son, making you holy because holiness does produce happiness. Next, verse 14 and 15. But each person, James, James is going to explain what happens here. It's the progression of sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it uh, has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so, like I said, and I've seen in my own life, it starts with something small and it builds before too long. We're doing something big. Over and over again, I've seen this progression take place. It's playing with a loaded gun. We, we would never load a gun and hand it to our kids and say, have a good time. But do we have that understanding of the seriousness when we play or flirt with sin, that it's actually something that's going to lead to death? And it might not lead to a physical death, but it can lead to a spiritual death. It, it is something that will have an impact right now. What you are doing will have an impact on your life and it will have an impact on your family's life and your church family's life. That is a reality. Do we understand this, that the sin that we flirt with, the sin that, uh, the, the sin that we play with is like playing with a loaded gun? Uh, James is using a progression to where, uh, to where basically you start to play with something, you flirt with something, and then you load something, and then before too long, it kills you. That's what he's saying. In a sense, it's like uh, the birth of a child. There, there's the point of conception, and then it grows, and then it grows into this fully developed thing, and that's what happens with sin. Here's what we have to pay attention to according to James. What do we desire? What do we desire? For he says here, each person when he is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Not all desire is bad. It is a good thing to desire my wife. It is a good thing to desire God's word. It is ultimately a good thing to desire God. But oftentimes in scripture talks about desire, talks about it in a bad way. Because we can be, we, we saw that even the garden, Genesis 3, was enticed and lured away by her desire. So oftentimes our desires can lead us astray. We should be cautious and we should be skeptical of our desires, not of God's word. And so what are you desiring now? And here's a good question. What is consuming your mind? What is consuming your thought? What is consuming your speech? What do you think about the most? What do you talk about the most? Is it your business? Is it success? Is it something? Or is it actually God? How... What's growing? What are you feeding in your life right now? And desire can lead us to sin. What happens is, is it's just like a, uh, just like bait on a hook for a fish. It is a lure that if, that if we're not cautious and not careful can lead us to death. Here's the thing. You can acknowledge beauty. You can acknowledge attractive people, but you have to be cautious to where your desires are leading you with that because your desires in that can lead you to sin. And so we just have to be cautious of what we are desiring. And so I'm going to go through a few things that talk about desire and what true desire is versus um, uh, a, a godly desire versus an ungodly desire. And so, again, as James is saying, where something can grow. And when you play with sin, 
you 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 feed the sin until it until it gives birth fully to death. And so let me go through a few things, say to to, to question what we're desiring and, and talk through this a little bit. First, I would say this success. Many people desire success. And, and when and when that get, runs its full course, it leads to death. And, and here's the thing. It looks pretty because you can provide for your family for, but it is not feeding godliness. And so we live our lives for money. We live our lives for the hobbies, for gyms, whatever it is. But oftentimes people live for success. And then their lives actually foundationally don't look any different from people that are ungodly in the sense of the very thing that they think about the most is business and success. And, and they think little about God and it's seen because they have little desire to lead their family, but they actually have little, if you can be honest, you have little desire to have deep, deep intimacy with God. And so you go through life thinking about things, making decisions actually more based from a success mindset than you do from a kingdom mindset. I see this oftentimes even in, in our church, but in church families is people, people's desires ultimately for success and how to get them there. That's why we make moves. That's why we make decisions in life. No different than a secular ungodly world. We desire success, the advancement of businesses, whatever it is, even over our church family. And, and so we make decisions to move and do things. We don't seek counsel. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, people have come in and said, hey, will you pray with me? I've made this decision to go and move my family, do this or whatever it is. And I'm like, it would have been awesome to be a part of that, to be a part of that conversation. But, but success drives us. Lust. Lust is another desire. And, and here's the reality statistically about 99% of men struggle with lust. And so if you're sitting right now, listening to this next to your wife, there, there's a strong reality. I'm just going to throw a man under the bus. There's a strong reality. Your husband battles with this, whether it's told or not. And, and I've had multiple young men, but also other men say that I don't share my sin struggles with my wife because it would crush her. Let me tell you this, that you not sharing sin with your wife also one day when she realizes that you've been battling it or falling into it. I've, I've, I've walked through a man who was married for 25 years and his marriage did not hang on because his wife found out about the deceit that he had lived in and she had put him on a pedestal that he came crashing down under instead of Christ being exalted and lifted up through confessing, which, which minimizes us and it pulls down our image we want to uphold and it points our spouse to Christ. And so lust, looking, uh, uh, feeding that. And here's the thing. I remember one time uh, having, having a, a man who was about 80, year old, 80, 80 years of age in my office. And he was asking me, can, can I do this? Can I do this? Or uh, um, can you stare at a woman like this? Can you stare at a woman like this? And here's, here's my answer to that. It, it's the same thing that, that I've said before. Our better question is, how do we bring glory to God? And the other one is, what are you feeding? But by giving little looks, and doing stuff like that, what are you feeding? You're feeding something right now. What are you feeding? And in those little looks, uh, the, the the little clicks on social media, those things lead, they progress. I promise you're not immune. They lead to something. But here's the reality. For also women, social media is just as dangerous. It's just as lustful to look at someone else's lifestyle, to look at someone else's stuff. And to get caught up in a competitive environment of like, I wish I had that. And so I'm not, I'm not saying get rid of social media. I don't have it. Personally, not a fan of it. It's a gateway drug for me that leads to everything else. And so I'm just saying, be careful what you are feeding and where your desires are leading you. Another desire is, is that we desire to actually not have self-control when the Bible tells us to have self-control. We lead 
the world in, in opioid consumption by it's, it, we consume like 85% and not just that, but, but we are one of the leading countries in obesity. Why? Because we desire what we want and to have it now. We desire to not have pain in our life. We desire to, to, to have whatever food or drink that we want. And we let those desires have full control. People sneak food uh, behind their spouse's back. People sneak pain medication, all this stuff. Let me say this as a pastor. I've had my, uh, some of my closest friends who have played around with, with pain, uh, pain medication, drug addictions, and all that stuff. Godly, godly men who have in the end ended up in rehab facilities and have deeply, deeply impacted their families. I, I've seen that. I, I've seen uh, one woman lose her children. I've seen other who is still in this battle that led to a heroin addiction. Please know what you're flirting with. Please know whatever you are feeding, that it can run its full course and you are not immune. Complaining. Com complaining comes from this desire of not being content. And we think in our culture, it's okay to not be content. It's okay to complain. Though in scripture, when complaining comes up, God has a problem with it. Why? Because we impugn God's goodness. In other words, we reject God's sovereignty and say, uh, whatever's going on in my situation, it, it, it's not good enough for me. And what we're actually saying when we complain is I deserve something better than what God has given me in my life. And here's the problem. You go, that's not a big deal. Yes, it is. Because each time that we do that, what we do is we impute our thoughts into the minds of our listeners, whether it's our children, whether it's other people, and we tell them it's okay to reject whatever situation, circumstance that God has brought into our life, that it's okay to not be content. The same thing with gossip. Gossip tears someone else down, but in the process of gossiping, what we do is we train our listeners to think that it's okay to talk like that. When in fact, scripture says this bring, has got to bring us to our knees. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such that fits the occasion that is that it gives grace to the hearers and it's for building up every single word that flows from our mouths. God did not say just some, all of them should give grace to those that we hear. Gossip does not do this. It's from a desire that comes from us being self-righteous, lifting ourselves up to the pulling down of someone else. Selfishness. We desire to be selfish. When the First Corinthians says that sin is not selfish, is not, or, or, I'm sorry, that love is not selfish, is not self-seeking. But here's the reality. Our attendance to gospel community and our attendance to church tells us how, how selfish we are. You, you can chalk it up as something else and, and you can say something else. Uh, even this week I was having a conversation with people is that people start to go, what, what is the point of it for me? Instead of our, our understanding of, of this is, we go to these things not to say, what can I suck out of this? What can I get out, get out of this? What can I give to this? How about God's word commanding us and telling us that it's important to not neglect meeting together? But, but our absence in those things actually just shows that, that we have a very God, uh, godless and, and worldview of community and of church attendance because we just go whenever it best fits us, whenever it best fits our needs. And so in that, we're selfish consumers that are feeding a selfish desire. And here's the thing. I know this is all hard, so just hang in there with me. And, and, and in a sense, it's like hard language to even swallow. But what we have adopted is this, is if I desire it, it must be okay. If, if I feel like it's good, and if I feel like it's loving, it must be okay. This, when it runs its course, is that we let our emotions and our desire be our guide whenever scripture says, bring into question what you're desiring. Because temptation is not sin, as James is saying, but temptation can lead us 
to our desires and our desires can lead us into sin. So, so we have to start the question. There's times when scripture calls us to, uh, to, to, to stand firm and stand our ground. But oftentimes when Paul and 2 Timothy 2.22 and other times, he says flee temptation. Don't flirt with it. Don't stick around with it. Don't see how far into temptation you can get. Flee. Bring into question our desires. Ask what we're desiring. Ask if we're desiring God. Ask if the thing that, uh, that, that we think about throughout the day, when we go to the gym, when we do these things, is it actually about our, our physical appearance? Is it about these things? Or does our life look different in all of the environment in all the environments we're in because we're, we're living out 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that in all we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all for the glory of God. And I think these are the things we need to question. And here's the thing, some of us, right now are living in sin some of us now have fallen into addiction some some of you right now are uh, choosing to live life based upon how it best works for your desire and here's the thing you go to church and you listen to sermons and you listen to this sermon but here's the reality are you being led by god and what his word says or your own desire let me give you an example many people today uh, live together sleep together before marriage and then they say hey we feel like it's loving because we love each other and we feel like it's right. Let me show you the inconsistency with this is when this happens and, and years later an affair happens, then these people come into the office and say, and, and the, the wife could say, I want you to hold my husband to a standard, uh, to a biblical standard because he's having an affair and he's cheated on me. In that, what they want me to do is take God's word and hold it as an authority to their husband. And, and the problem with that is, is right now, you only want God's word when it benefits you. You don't want to submit your life to God's word in, in, in its fullness. And so I could say to that spouse, which I wouldn't do in that moment, I could say, but what if your husband thinks his desire is right? What if your husband thinks that it's fine because he loves you and he loves her? Would you be okay with that? Everyone would be like, no chance, no way. Because we, 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 we know that, that in us, deep within us that God's word is truth. Though we try to suppress it, it's truth. And if we're thinking about sex, why don't we go to the person who created the anatomy? Why don't we go to the person that created the gift? When we talk about marriage, why don't we go to God who created the gift of marriage and take our cues from him instead of what our desires want? And so, as James says, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it conceives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Whatever you're flirting with, whatever you're playing with, whatever you're feeding right now, I promise you and myself and everyone else, I've seen it. If you don't kill it, if you don't put it to death, this is biblical language. This is Colossians 3, 5, put to death. This is what Paul says, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? He also says again in Romans 8, 12 and 13. So how, how do we kill our sin and put uh, uh, in Romans 8 and 12, he's telling us the same thing, kill our sin. So how do we do it? What are we feeding? How do we kill our sin? Here's how we kill our sin. The gospel. That is, as Chandler would say, our frontal head-on assault. Everything else is a flank. But first and foremost, we kill our sin by feeding our souls the gospel. That's it. Then through prayer and word, then through community and fashion, and then serving. And so I, I will briefly walk through these. We first put to death our sin through the gospel. If not, 
If we don't understand the gospel, if we don't understand that we can't save ourselves by how well we fight against sin, if, if, if we don't understand that, that we will spend our lives trying to fight, uh, trying to fight and battle and kill sin in our lives, thinking that, that the measure to which we do that will be the measure to which God loves us. And if we do it well, then we'll be in good standing with God. That is, that is anti-gospel. The gospel is this, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. His desires, everything, think about that. Every moment of every day, we, 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 we are worshiping and desiring. Every moment of every day, every second, Jesus ultimately worshiped God and desired him. Then he took that sinless life to the cross as a sacrifice there. Jesus came to rescue us from our sin, to pay a debt that we couldn't pay. We, we can't just declare bankruptcy. We, we can't throw coins in a basket. We need a perfect sacrifice and substitute to bear the wrath of God for the sins of treason we've committed against him. Only Jesus Christ has that to lay down and offer. And he did that on the cross. And we have to see and understand that Jesus Christ alone was and is this perfect sacrifice. And through our faith in him, God sees us as though we have lived a sinless life. God sees us as though our desires have always been for God. God sees us as though that we always worship him and live for his glory. Not because we have done this, but because the sinless sacrifice of Christ himself was given to us. His life of perfect sinless obedience was imputed to us and our life of sinless rebellion and treason was placed upon him where he bore that wrath. We have to understand this. And, and, and the, I'm taken back to the story of the little boy in class who was sitting in class uh, and, and he actually uh, urinated on himself in class. And he remembers exactly what happened next, that there was a young girl in, in, in class with him that actually went over and grabbed a fishbowl and started walking towards him. When she got to him, she dumped the fishbowl all over him, spilling it all over him, breaking the glass, killing the fish. And then she, in that moment, covered his shame that he was about to experience and she took the wrath from the teacher for what she just did. In the same way, that is what Christ has done for us. He's taken the shame, he's taken the sin, and, and, and he's buried it. And what he's done is himself taken the wrath and he's chosen to clothe and cover us with his righteousness. Now, that's our frontal assault. If we don't understand that's ultimately how we kill sin, we'll spend our lives battling to try to kill sin. Instead, what we battle, listen, please listen. What we battle is to live consistently with who we already are as children of God made perfect in his sight. Say, say that again in a different way. Instead of battling to defeat sin, which Christ has defeated, we battle to live consistent, consistently with who we are as righteous, flawless, perfect, and innocent, sinless people in the sight of God. We fight to live consistent to what Christ has already made us new and perfect. How else do we feed this godliness and put to death sin? Through prayer. Every time we pray, we are recognizing that we need God. We declare it through prayer, our, our, our need for him, through the word. And here's, here, here's a 2021 uh, challenge. Take your phone, if you're willing, and show someone the amount of time you spend on social media and say this, for, for just one week, I'm going to start one week, maybe I can go two or three, I want to try to at least bring to an equal balance the amount of time that I'm in the Word and in prayer with how much time I spend on social media. And again, let's see what that feeds in our lives and what that puts to death and what it brings life to. That's a big challenge, but if we're honest and we look at how much time we spend here versus how much time we spend in the Word and prayer, my guess is it's like this. That says something. Next, 
community and confession. Tim Keller draws a real hard line and says, you will not grow in Christ-likeness apart from community. I agree with him. If you're separated from community, from the local church, and from confession, which James talks about, you need to get into a local body. You need to have a community of believers. What you need to do is, is have a practice, an ongoing practice and rhythm of confession. To confess our sins with our spouse, to confess our sins. If we're not daily confessing, are we daily understanding our need for grace and for Jesus? If we're not sharing with our kids our own need for Jesus, how will they ever see how amazing Christ is? Last serving. Since sin is selfish at its core, and I'll just be honest, I don't like it when people say, um, I just uh, my, I talked to my counselor and they said that I need to go on a journey to figure out how to love myself. I've never met the person that is not awesome at loving themselves. We are selfish to the core. I know what's meant by that, but we are self-seeking in so many ways. Serving takes us out from, from our inward focus and all that we need and says, how do I serve and meet the needs of others instead of constantly feeding my selfish desires? Whatever we're flirting with, whatever we're playing with uh, th that is sin, it is playing with a loaded gun. Please consider that. Please call me. Please reach out to your community. Please reach out to your church family. Let's recognize that, that playing with sin, and Scripture is so, so, so honest about how dangerous this is. Let's take God at his word. Let's bring these things into question. Bring these things into check. Let's move in repentance. Let's, let's move in faith. If you're someone that's just always busy. Please don't be too busy to make uh, to make disciples. Don't be too busy for the word and for prayer and for community. In, in, in closing, I want to share this. Some of you might be familiar with Robert Robinson, but some of you might not. Uh, he was uh, a man passionate for Jesus, a man uh, whose father died at the age of eight, uh, a man who had to uh, become an apprentice at a young age at a barber shop to help provide for his family. This man went on to be heavily influenced by George Whitfield. This man went on to pastor himself and, and, and even lead a large church. But this man is also a man whose heart led him uh, astray or, or his heart wandered. And he's a guy you wouldn't think uh, that could happen to. So one day uh, he found himself on a stagecoach um, and there was a lady singing a song. And the, the lyrics that she was singing and singing beautifully were these lyrics. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The lady asked him after the song what he thought of it. And, and, and this is what he said. He said, uh, Madam, he said, I am the unhappy man that wrote that song many years ago. And, and, and I would sell a thousand worlds or do whatever I could to be back at that state back at that spot with God, his heart, the man who wrote, come thou fount Robert Robinson himself, his heart was prone to wander. He felt it and his heart did wander. What we're feeding ourselves is important. If we don't think our hearts are prone to wander, that is dangerous. Please recognize this and please like the lyrics of that song, ask God, I'm, I'm daily a sinner, bind my wandering heart to thee, seal it for the courts above. And with that, I'm gonna close in a prayer from this liturgical book called Every Moment Holy. This prayer is titled, Battling a Destructive Desire. So with this, 
Let me close in prayer. And Zach Schaefer is going to close us out actually by singing this, the hymn, Come Thou Fount. And I would encourage you where you're at, sing the words of this song. And don't just sing them because you see them on the screen. Sing them from your heart, declaring your need for God to bind your wandering heart to him. If it's not true for you that you have not trusted in Jesus, simply cry out. Confess, declare your need for him to save you. Let's pray. Jesus, here I am again, desiring a thing that were I to indulge in it, would war against my own heart and the hearts of those I love. O Christ, rather let my life be thine. Take my desires, let them be subsumed, and still greater desire for you until there remains no room for these lesser cravings. In this moment, I might choose to indulge a fleeting hunger, or I might choose to love you more. Faced with the temptation, I would rather choose you, Jesus, but I am weak. So be my strength, I am shadowed. Be my light, I am selfish. Unmake me now and refashion my desires according to the better designs of your love. Given the choice of shame or glory, let me choose glory. Given the choice of this moment or eternity, let me choose in this moment what is eternal. Given the choice of this easy pleasure or the harder road of the cross, give me grace to choose to follow you, knowing that there is nowhere apart from your presence where I might find the peace I long for. No lasting satisfaction apart from your reclaiming of my heart. Let me build then my king a beautiful thing by long obedience, by the steady progression of small choices that laid in to end will become like the stones of a pleasing path stretching to eternity and unto your welcoming arms and unto the sound of your voice pronouncing the judgment. Well done. Amen.